be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil, and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants for God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Hello, and welcome to episode 11 of Lessons Learned. I'm Dylan. And I'm Evan. And we're going to do things just a little bit differently. We're going to open these episodes with a verse, um, and then we're going to chat about them a little bit, and we're just going to kind of let that bleed into uh, whatever book we're reading. Right now, it's still Maps of Meaning, and it's going to be that way for a while. A little while. But that was actually First Peter, um, second chapter, 13 through 17. Um, let me actually keep that up for a second. So I think it's really interesting. Um, specifically, um, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Um, and before we started, um, I was reading the NIV version and it said, uh, slaves of God. And I looked at Evan and I was like, I don't know how many people like this, but he said, read the ESV version. I did. And it said servants. And I was a lot more happy with that. But I was less concerned about what that meant for me and for Evan, because we know what that means. But I just didn't want it to be a very off-putting way to kind of read a Bible verse. Mm. But to kind of elaborate on that, it's talking about serving God, which is really for your benefit, as weird as that kind of sounds. Um, and this kind of goes back to earlier episodes where we talked about looking to God when you're in like a jungle because he can see everything. He can see the path you need to go. So you're serving God both for his glory, but you're also doing it for your own personal benefit a lot of the times. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's talking about not using your free will just to kind of like cover up things, but to serve God, knowing that it's going to suck a little bit to bring hard things to the light, but more importantly, not only is serving God going to benefit him and is what he commands you to do, but it's majorly going to benefit you and it's going to help you grow as an individual and develop and, and so forth. So that verse really just stuck out to me. Yeah. Um, to make the slavery versus servant thing more clear, um, the NIV version, the one that said slave, NIV is meant to be, it's supposed to get across the point of the Bible more. Um, so it's not as much a literal translation as it's, here's what the original Hebrew or Greek was trying to convey. Whereas the ESV version, the one that he actually did end up reading with servant, that is more of a literal translation. So it would have been translated to servant or it would have meant servant mm -hmm. in the, in the Greek, but the point of NIV using the word slave is just, it's talking about uh, the importance of submission to God. Yeah. Um, so for anyone that's curious, that's why it said 
yeah. slave instead of servant. And this kind of, and that kind of goes back to like when we've talked earlier about um, like the blue letter Bible and stuff. There's so many like tenses and stuff for Hebrew and Greek words. Mm-hmm. And then each of those tenses, a lot of them do have like very similar definitions. But Winston showed me some of them have very different definitions. Yeah. Some of them have very, very different definitions. So your tense is very important. So I do like the ESV version a little more though. That's I'll be completely honest. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I... I looked around at some verses and we landed on that one because today we're going to be going over the great father. Mm-hmm. The title of this section is images of the known or explored territory. So he has at the beginning of the section, a question that he's trying to answer or maybe more accurately, we as people try to answer in our day to day, which is when you have so many possibilities about how you can act, how do you arrange those possibilities once you've originated them or copied them from someone else? Mm-hmm. So that's what we're going to kind of be dealing with here is how he thinks that people deal with the pretty much endless ways that they can act at any given moment. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, another way he frames the question is how can competing possibilities, the multiplicity of potential choices, be amalgamated into some sort of unity, the kind of unity that makes mutual coexistence possible. So he's saying like, what's some sort of, um, what's some way that you can take all of these different drives, all of these different like urges, instincts, wants, desires, what can you use to take all of these and put them together in a way that you can actually act successfully and in like a coherent and useful way? Gotcha. And that's that's the question he's answering. That's I think he's saying that that's where the great great father comes in Mm -hmm. is our version of the great father is supposed to be an answer to that question. Gotcha. He's not trying to tell us that way or Mm -hmm. maybe he's going to give his opinion about what he thinks that way is. Um, But he's saying that that's the point of these myths and stuff that he's going over in this section is trying to answer that. Yeah. Okay. Um. So he says permanent satisfactory resolution of such conflict between temptation and moral purity, for example, require the construction of an abstract moral system powerful enough to allow what an occurrence signifies for the future to govern reaction to what it signifies now. So pretty much what he's saying is the only way that we can resolve the conflict between all the different things we have going on is an abstract moral system that can tell us what to do. Mm-hmm. because that's going to be able to guide our actions specifically in a way that can tell us what's important in the future so that that influences how we act now so that we're not just acting in the moment. Right. And I mean, yeah, I, I, that's definitely something that I feel like a lot of people put off is acting for the future mm-hmm. specifically. You know, I mean, like, yeah, eat healthy. It's like, yeah, but I'm young, you know, like I want to drink, I want to eat chocolate cake, you know, I want to do these things. Mm-hmm. But then at the same time, you're really putting off the f- effect that has on your future. And that can go all the way to like young you when you're like, I want to learn this new thing or I want to do this thing. And then you don't and then you get older and then time finally catches up and you're like, 
I probably should have learned that thing because then I would be able to be very good at it by now. <laughs> but now I have to learn the basics. And it's like, I think we often forget that what we do right now directly impacts future us. Mm -hmm. And sometimes pretty painfully. Yeah. Well, and I was listening to a podcast when they were talking about Albert Camus mm -hmm. and his like absurdism and existentialism and how it it's similar and different to Christianity. Sure. Because he thought that there was an eternity that existed mm -hmm. of like nothingness pretty much. So his version of that was like nothing matters because you know, you're not, you're just going to die someday and that's it game over. Right. Um, whereas quit Christians, we, st we also see that eternity yeah, and we are in that eternity. And I think with Christians, you can look at it two ways. One is that the stuff that's happening right now, doesn't matter as much because we have forever. Right. So like if you're late to work or something like that, for example, like that's not great, but mm. you don't have to be super stressed about it because ultimately it's not going to matter in the long run. Yeah. I get what but you're saying. At the, on the other side of that coin is the idea that everything that you do now is going to live with you for eternity. So yeah. it's very important what you do now. Yeah. Well, I think, I think an important concept to acknowledge is to forgive yourself for the mistakes you make mm -hmm. because we're all going to be susceptible to error. Like that's just human nature. And I think especially in Christianity, do we acknowledge like that we're sinners? Mm -hmm. And that was something that I actually struggled a lot when um, I first started going to church and mm -hmm. they were like, we're all sinners. And I was like, honestly, like, is it, is it all of us? I don't know. I'm pretty good, dude. I'm pretty good. But and I think I just struggled with it because it just sounds so harsh. Like we're all sinners, sure. you know, but the, the concept comes from Genesis when Adam and Eve ate the fruit mm -hmm. and then fell. That's the first sin of humanity. That's, that's the lineage of sinners. That's the lineage of mistakes. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we're all sinners. And it doesn't inherently mean that every sin you commit is intentional. Mm -hmm. It can be a mistake. You could you could think you're squeaky clean, but it was only an error did you sin. But you sinned nonetheless. Yeah. And I think you can look at it two ways where either you can think it's really harsh. Mm -hmm. um, I think especially when you first hear it and don't have as much time to contemplate it maybe and think about it. Mm. Um, I think that's kind of the first reaction and where I've gotten as a Christian and I hope most Christians are at is, yeah, I'm a sinner and I recognize that. So I know I'm going to make mistakes and I'm know I'm, I'm going to do things that aren't correct. Yeah. But that just means I'm going to try doubly hard to do the right thing and do good yeah. as much as I can. Well, well, I think the really cool thing is, is that, um, we can always ask for forgiveness and God will always forgive us. Isn't that epic? Mm -hmm. I mean, think about how many times you've goofed up and you went to apologize to somebody and ask for forgiveness and you were nervous or scared or worried that they weren't even going to bother. Like they weren't going to give you the time of day. Yeah. God's not like that at all. He will always forgive you. He will always give you the time of day. So I think that's something that's really cool that, we don't take as much advantage of as we ought to is like, 
in error, somebody like mortal to mortal, flesh to flesh, even in error, we will be mad at with each other. That's just, you know, what we do. So we can ask for forgiveness, but there's, there's a genuine fear and it, it's totally valid that they might not forgive you Mm -hmm. or that they might be doubly mad at you, but God doesn't do that. And I think that's just something that's really epic. Yeah. That really alleviates that kind of like, we're all dirty sinners. Yeah. But like, acknowledge it, grow, learn, know that God will forgive you. Mm -hmm. Don't take advantage of it in the sense that just, you know, sin all the time. Right. But do take advantage of it and that he will forgive you. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we've heard stories about people who say that (coughs) they can do whatever they want now. Because then when they're on their deathbed, they'll just go mm. to God then and have their all their sins forgiven. Yeah. And it's like, that's not how it works. Yeah. Well, because um, me and my girlfriend talked about this because she knew somebody in high school who asked that very question. Um, and it's not the person you're thinking of mm-hmm. when I say this, but it was somebody who was former Christian turned to Norse mythology. Mm-hmm. It's a different person. Um, friend of that other person though he said well well if i want to be christian why don't i just spend my whole life sinning and then just you know ask for forgiveness when i die and the reason that doesn't work is because if you have faith in jesus and you do believe in jesus you're gonna act like it Mm -hmm. it's that simple yeah i think that it's probably because we have hindsight and hindsight's better than mm. anything. But like the whole Protestant Reformation versus the Catholic Church, you know, mm-hmm. that was salvation or um, being saved. What was it? Salvation by works versus salvation by faith. Yeah. And the whole thing was like, well, how do you go to heaven? Do you go to heaven because like you're doing good things because the Bible tells us to do good things? And then the other side says, no, you just have to believe and you can go to heaven. But then there was people on that side of it that de-emphasized the importance of doing good works. Mm. And you and I went through James and I think we kind of realized, well, that's kind of overcomplicating it because the point is that if you truly do believe and have faith, you're going to want to be doing those good works anyways. Yeah. Well, it's, it's just like any faith that you have beyond, beyond religious context if you, let's say you build a step stool, if you have faith in your step stool, you'll use it. Mm-hmm. You're not going to use something else. You're just going to use the one you built, right? Mm-hmm. So if you have faith in God, you're not going to just like not follow God because like you, your faith is that he's the way he's right. Mm-hmm. He's the light at your feet. So if you had real faith, you would, you would just follow it at least to the very best of your abilities. So this whole idea that you can just go sin and do whatever you want and then just go, forgive me. It's Well, you clearly don't believe it because mm-hmm. if you did, you would have not done all those things. Yeah. So. And, you know, there's a maybe a separate conversation to be had where, you know, if you really do come into faith on your death, but that's different. Oh, yeah. Um, but that's not a I'll just do it at the last minute no. so that I can be saved kind no. of situation. Well, we, we've met plenty of people that thought they were just totally fine their mm-hmm. entire life and then they were saved mm-hmm. later in life and there's nothing wrong with that at all yeah it's actually i think it's really epic that you got to experience life without christ 
and then after all of these experiences your your conclusion was still i need christ right you know what i mean mm-hmm. so there's nothing wrong with it it's it's the the idea of living in opposition only with the intention of accepting it last minute right and that doesn't work yeah yeah so next he goes into stories mm. um and how we use those to kind of regulate our actions and the okay. way that we see the world, which I think is fair considering that that's what we do. Um, like if you think of Christianity as a story, that's the thing that regulates our framework Yeah, and how we yeah. see the world. So okay. here's a quote about that. Um, the stories by which individuals live, which comprise their schemas of interpretation, which guide their actions, which regulate their emotions are therefore emergent structures shaped by the necessity of organizing competing internal biological demands over variable spans of time in the presence of others faced with the same fate. Mm. So I disagree right. with some of this. Um, the So the stories by which we live, and he gives some examples of what that means, um, he's saying that those stories are emergent structures that came up over time due to competing biological demands um, in the presence of other people in the same situation. So pretty much what he would be, it's pretty much, uh, it's coming from the evolutionary perspective and mm-hmm. the same idea where it's like the behavior turns into the story mm-hmm. um, where they figure out like, so for Marduk in the Enuma Elish, what he said that that represented was them realizing that like consciousness and wisdom and looking ahead of you and that sort of thing, those are the things that should be above other considerations. Um, And then it first, they saw those behaviors and then they were like, Oh, those make you really successful. And then those turned into a story. Um, And what that story is doing, according to Jordan Peterson, is it's organizing those competing biological demands by telling you which thing you should be focusing on. Okay. And he's saying that that develops over a span of time in the presence of others faced with the same fate. Hmm. How do you feel about it? You buy it? Mm, I don't think that... It inherently goes against like your biological, like your innate biological demands. Mm-hmm. Like I just don't think that tracks. It goes against. Well, it doesn't go against it. Oh, it just regulates it. So, it, so for an example, would be like, <clears throat> let's say you feel like eating food, mm-hmm. but you already just ate a little bit ago. Mm-hmm. A structure or a story or whatever maybe about gluttony could tell you not to keep eating because you don't need more than that. And it would be bad for you even though your body wants to have more. Mm. It's talking, it's just regulating those like that so that you can live a better life. Interesting. Okay. So it's kind of like how fables work for little kids. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You can give a fail to demonstrate a moral lesson mm-hmm. with how they should regulate their own biological functions yeah. and the way that they should live. Um, He's pretty much saying that that's where these stories come about. And the stories come from the necessity to regulate biology? Yeah, because Hmm. it needs to be regulated because there's so much that you can do. Mm -hmm. So they see something that works, 
and then they emulate it through their behavior. Mm -hmm. And then that set of behaviors becomes a story Hmm. that can re give that behavior to other people. I don't think that's where the stories derive from, Mm -hmm. but that's not where Christianity derives from. No. So like, it's wrong in the context of Christianity. I guess where I'm kind of like wishy-washy is I don't know where the other mythologies would have come from. Yeah. And that's my thing. But I really am just stuck on the whole Tower of Babel concept that mm-hmm. when the Tower of Babel happened and societies, well, the one society split into different groups of people. Mm-hmm. And that's why we see varying mythologies across, you know, the world. Yet we see similarities such as a serpent Mm -hmm. such as described in genesis chapter two or what chapter three i trust you on that you know because two was adam and eve and then three is the fall of man okay um like i i so i i don't want to be biased because like Mm -hmm. i don't think we have enough like evidence to suggest that that's the truth sure or that that's right so i don't want to like walk into this conversation with that Mm -hmm. in mind but i will say for christianity that it's not true yeah and i i think that's fair because especially because he doesn't offer a ton of proof about that yeah i think it's kind of one of those it's not chronological snobbery where like, mm. you, you know, you think you're better than the stuff after or before you, but right. maybe it comes from an evolutionary line of thinking, like an idea of progress yeah. that things get. Well, like um, the way to get better through like societal understanding is it would get better over time. Right. And like and builds that, on itself. And that the best way to do that is through the like entertainment aspect of things Mm -hmm. where it's like your free time is like given by choice to these things Mm -hmm. which can give you messages that you need to hear to better yourself yeah i just think that's i think that's just above what people are really capable of is turning behaviors into stories no you can do that well yeah but i mean like i it just doesn't track in my mind that they saw the success of somebody, so then they took that and turned it into an entire mythology, well, like an entire you know, religion. Before basically. that, the the step in between those two is that they emulate those behaviors of the first person, mm-hmm. and then everyone's doing those things, and that transforms into a mythology. See, I still don't think that's like a reasonable step, though. And I don't know if I think it is either. Like I said, I think the like, biggest issue here is he's just not proving it. Right, and I mean, like, think about it. Like, how are you going to go from, like, okay, so these people are successful. Oh, you know how we convey that? Let's make an entire religion around it. I Yeah, I that think... That just doesn't track for me. I think the issue is... I feel like it has something to do with his idea that before empirical science, they saw everything as containing meaning hmm. or, like, containing motivation in it do you remember that stuff from earlier on yeah i think it i don't understand the connection all the way but it should have something to do with that um I'm i guessing. guess but like but i well and i think you can see the like writing a fable yeah to show a moral 
Right. Yeah, absolutely. But I think that even though you can see it there, that's not proof that it would happen for a religion. Right. So, I mean, we can look at more modern examples of religion. Mm-hmm. Um, like Mormonism was started with one guy. Who and that's exactly where I was stuff. going with this. Mm-hmm. Is like Mormonism or Scientology. It's just started with like one person. Pretty much. Yeah. To my knowledge. I mean, Scientology is... That was started with... Uh, Odd. L. Ron Hubbard. Yes. I remember... I remember L. Ron Hubbard, and I remember the gist of Scientology because I watched South Park. Classic. And the only reason that, like, that, as dumb as that sounds, the only reason that that's, like, a reasonable, like, trustworthy source is because they told the story of Scientology, and then in, like, a quote or, like, in a caption at the bottom, it said... This is what Scientologists actually believe. And then I looked it up. And it, and it was dead on. No, yeah. Um, I listened to a whole like three-hour podcast about Scientology. Really? See, I just don't think that the creation of that mythology or religion, however you want to yeah. label it, that wasn't to emulate success. It wasn't to be any sort of behavior. No. Neither was Mormonism. And we won't get into like why they were made or our personal opinions on them because I just don't think that's right. But we can agree that neither one were made because a bunch of people were very successful. So they wanted to capture that within a story mm-hmm. so other people could live like that. And it that. wasn't something that happened over time. No. Like Mormonism changed over time. I think it's better than when it started. I think, yeah, I think there's a lot of changes like, that were made. Yeah, and... a lot of Mormons that I know are just like good people. Um, and I think, I think the religion is just different since it started yeah. with, um, what's the guy's name? John Smith, Joseph Smith, Joseph Smith. Yes. <coughs> but yeah, so <coughs> I'm not entirely convinced by it. It doesn't sound like you are either. No. Um, but we'll, we'll continue with it. So he gives some more limited examples. Um, he talks about marriage okay, as an example of submitting yourself to uh like a social order uh so we'll just listen to them okay go ahead i think he's actually got a good point about this in marriage the desire for individual self-expression is necessarily limited by the desire for maintenance of the intimate interpersonal relationship and for the adoption of respectable social role that constitutes each each maintenance so he's saying that okay. you take your own opportunity for self-expression and limit that so that you can have an intimate interpersonal relationship, which I, I think is true because it's like, I know you've heard Matt Walsh talk about it before, how it's better to get married younger. That's exactly where I was going to go with this is that he says it's better to get married younger so you can grow together and mm-hmm. build a life together rather than being like two individual people and then trying to like mishmash your individual selves Mm -hmm. together. And that's what he's saying is to some degree that does happen with marriage always Mm -hmm. is that you're taking some individuality and you're kind of pushing it to the side in terms of importance. Mm. You're kind of sacrificing some of that individuality so that you can have that relationship. Gotcha. I mean, yeah, like then, yeah. And I I think that's a good thing for sure Mm -hmm. because part of being in any relationship is like a give and take. Yeah. Um, Because that's just 
how it that's just how it has to work like we're not all the same copy of each other so like we don't all have the same exact ideas like we might have the same idea and then when paper comes to pen they're actually not quite the same right because we're all individual people but i think that's what that's why we're called in my eyes is why we're called to community so you can two heads are better than one Mm -hmm. you know so you can talk about these things that you have uh kind of come up with as individuals and and try to put them together and work them out because if we're trying to figure out how to travel across space you know Mm -hmm. i might have figured out a very efficient type of fuel you know i mix these chemicals and i was like oh i i got this really you know great fuel source and here's my plan for a rocket that's very quick and the rocket kind of sucks but you Mm -hmm. have a great idea for a rocket but not a very like useful fuel source it burns really quick Mm -hmm. and then it's useless but we can work together to put those two ideas together but individually they would have never worked i think that's like part of being community and why like part of like our life is that we're called to like be married Mm -hmm. like we're not intended to just be alone because i think we would just see a lot less success alone yeah i actually saw andrew clavin did a video and he was talking about married couples versus um like couples that aren't married but live together but live together and their income differences Mm -hmm. married couples make Four times as much Whoa. as couples that just aren't married. Hmm. And he was reading an article from somebody who who wasn't married but was in a relationship and living together. And the lady writing the article was just like, I just don't understand. Like, I don't get it. I don't understand why my friends have so much more wealth than we do. Mm-hmm. And she was like, like, there's tax benefits and stuff, but it doesn't constitute for, like, the astronomical amount of more wealth mm-hmm. than what we have. So, you know, that's interesting. Get married. Yeah, it is really interesting. Clavin didn't have a definitive answer either. I he don't. was just like, but you should get married then. Yeah. Right. Because, you know, empirical data. Um, so to further this idea, mm-hmm. voluntary subordination of the personal wishes of both individuals to the higher moral order embodied in the action patterns of the Christian savior for Mm -hmm. example, Mm -hmm. means implicit agreement between like the two individuals, um, implicit agreement about the nature of transcendent principles that can be referred to when mediation between incompatible desires and presuppositions becomes necessary. So he's pretty much saying that both of the people involved in marriage are voluntarily, voluntarily becoming subordinate to the idea that there are transcendent principles that we can look at when you have, when we have an issue with our partner. Yeah. I mean, I think that's true. And I think it's a very good thing Mm -hmm. because the number of times me and my girlfriend have gotten into like some type of disagreement, whether just like, like a simple thing Mm -hmm. or whether a little bit more important to us, we usually go back to, well, what does the Bible say? And I think it's incredibly helpful because not only does it like guide us in how we should like carry ourselves through the conversation as like individuals, but like what the importance of the whole conversation is. Cause it's kind of like what we talked about last episode where it's like, there's no point in going into the unknown 
if you're unwilling to admit that you could be wrong, mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's no point. So there's no point of going into a conversation, starting with a disagreeance, mm -hmm. if you're unwilling to admit that you could be wrong. And I think to connect it to his point here, he would say that someone that's willing to be wrong is accepting the notion that truth is transcendental maybe to your own beliefs mm. so the you're submitting yourself to the idea that maybe you don't know the truth mm -hmm. always and you could be wrong sometimes but because yeah. you are subordinate to that you are better off for it you definitely are you definitely are mm -hmm. i'm i don't i have yet to meet somebody who thinks they have all the answers and to actually like hear what they think come out of their mouth and go like, oh yeah, that guy's got all the answers. Mm -hmm. Usually it's the person that's like, oh, I don't know that much. And then they open their mouth and you're like, dude, you're like Einstein, but you aren't famous. And I, that's a shame because you're brilliant. Mm -hmm. I think you know who I'm talking about there. Yeah. Very cool guy. Um. So yeah. Does marriage, you got the marriage thing down? Yeah, I mean, he's pretty I much. I could be married right now. Oh. Yeah, I got it down. Ring, finger, boom. Done. Done. Yep. Marriage down. Cool. Yeah. Um. That's what the certificate's for. Yeah. It's to acknowledge that you understand. Ring, finger, boom, down. So, he talks about marriage as just an example okay. of how it works for a culture. So that's that abstract moral system where it's the same way in a society where if you want to have a functional one, then you have everybody in it subordinate to certain ideas, mm. just like you are in a marriage. Um, and I think that that connects quite a bit to today mm -hmm. because we have to oversimplify it. Probably <laughs> two main camps of people that are subordinate to different ideals and those are clashing together where one i would say you could call it the individual maybe mm -hmm. or the self yeah one is subordinate to the self yep and the other is subordinate to i don't know what would you want to call it you could say probably a couple different things um for us it would be god yeah that's kind of just where my mind goes is, well, God. So we'll just, we'll stick with that. Then. Yeah. I, well, I, I think for the context of what this show is, mm -hmm. as it, it is us talking about things, I yeah. think that's okay to say. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you can just, and then there's, I mean, you can say that there's more than two. Obviously there's well, going to be quite a few, but. Judaism's the same God. Right. Well, my point is um, you can have people that are subordinate to money. Supporting um, to all these different things. Higher but... power. Mm -hmm. Does that encompass what you want to wanted it to? Like subordinate to a some higher power? Some are subordinate to themselves and some are subordinate to a higher power. Yeah, that's a good way you could put it. Okay, then let's do that. Yeah. I think that the self one is probably more unprecedented, mm -hmm. historically speaking. Well, it definitely um, is. <clears throat> but... Yeah, those are probably two good general ones. Yeah, well, that I think that goes back to um, when we were talking about The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman. You can go pick it up at Barnes & Nobles. We're not a sponsor. It's just a good book. 
Um, yep. I have to cough. Hang on. <clears throat> uh, that's talking about like poeticism and what is it? Memeticism? Mimeticism? I don't. Are they isms? Well, it's poetic and memetic, right? But you can say poeticism. Can you not? Uh, I'll look it up. He's looking it up. While he's looking it up, I'm going to keep explaining my thing. Oh, it's mimesis and poiesis. Okay, poiesis. So, um, I mean, what you just explained was poiesis and mimesis. Mimesis. Um, The worship of the self and the worship of higher power. But that higher power, I would argue, is just looking to your community. Mm-hmm. Like alt ultimately, like whether whatever your community is. Yeah, I mean it's kind of where you find meaning, right? Yeah, exactly. Whether you can find it in yourself, or whether you find it among your community. Right. So, in looking to yourself for all of the answers is like a surefire way to know nothing. Hmm. What what is you gonna tell you that you don't know? Sure. It, it's just a circle of just like you're talking to a brick wall. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I think thinking and spending time in solitude outside of spending time in solitude to get build a better relationship with God, thinking independently in solitude, whether that's like with music, whether that's like having like a drink, but just being alone and thinking is very important. But ultimately, it's not until you bring those thoughts outside of yourself that you finally get some like answers or confirmation or maybe rejection mm-hmm. and the right answer, you know, mm-hmm. like, so looking at you to answer you because you are confused about something that you want to know, isn't going to provide an answer. Which is why, I mean, even in, even when people do that, they still have to look to other people. Yeah. Something that Truman talks about in the book is that, a a self can't exist without others yeah. to exist, not in opposition to in an adverse sense, mm-hmm. but in opposition since they are not that person. Yeah. Well. So like you can only have an identity. Yeah. In contrast to other people's identities. Yeah. Well, I and I would make a, a connection from cigars but i know it's like less than one percent of the population smokes cigars Mm -hmm. so i'll make a contrast with chocolate okay yep so i mean think about it like this you go to the store and you get some chocolate right Mm -hmm. and there's like the off-brand chocolate or no we we can even i can do better than that there's you know ghirardelli chocolate and dove Mm -hmm. chocolate yeah and hershey chocolate all taste very different and it's not that they contrast each other. It's not like one's chocolate and the other one's a lime, you know, but it, it's the contrast, though they're similar. But it's only because that there's it's only because in their similarities do you see the contrast. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's similar to that, where it's like you you have two males, they're both six foot, blonde hair, blue eyes, conservative, Christian. There's definitely a contrast somewhere. They're not in opposition of each other, mm-hmm. but there's a contrast because that's just like the innate individual is like we are made. And as we Christians believe God made us all 
individually with a purpose. Mm -hmm. Like we're all special snowflakes, but we're not that special. <laughs> uh -huh. Um, yeah, cool. I think you get that one pretty well. I am smart now. Here's another concept for you. Um, that he moves on to next, and I think it's related. Odd hope since these are going in order. Mm -hmm. The socially determined affective significance of the object is naturally experienced as an aspect of the object, which is to say that the charisma radiating from an Elvis Presley guitar is part of the guitar. Mm. This means that the meaning of objects in a social context is actually information about the structure of that social context. Hmm. So he's pretty much saying that you can learn about how a society is structured or what it um, makes important based on the meaning of different objects. Yeah, I think so. And I think you can see it maybe, I don't know, you can see it in churches. Sure. Um, some churches have crosses pretty much everywhere, some don't. Yeah. Well, and some have the crucifixion of Jesus on the cross. Right. And some don't have that. Yeah. So you can see that there's something different about the structures based on that fact. Well, I was going to say something completely different. Go for it. Well, I was going to say it's kind of like in video games. That's better. Where like Fallout 4, the currency is bottle caps. Mm-hmm. But for us, it's not. It is the American dollar. Yeah. And then quarters and dimes, but in this economy, they're kind of pointless at this, they're all at pennies. this stage. Yeah, they're all pennies. So that society, it says something about the society and its structure and what it values when its currency is literally bottle caps, like pop bottle caps. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I think you can do that with a lot of different things. And I think that's what is really cool about world building within like video games and movies and stuff. Yeah. Is like, what do these people value? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So then it like begs the question, like, well, what's wrong with like actual currency? Like why, why in fallout four is it bottle caps and not like a dollar? Cause there's dollars in the game. You can pick them up. I have way too many of them because mm -hmm. I think at some point somebody's going to ask for them and then I'll be glad I have them, but never happens. Never has happened so far. So far. You don't know that, but my point is, is like from a story building perspective, it's important on what you intend for your characters and society and culture to um, place importance on. But I think it's also really unique in reality. I mean, look at, let's say like Norse mythology mm -hmm. or Greek mythology where there's the, um... <coughs> I'm sorry, Poly polytheistic. Mm-hmm. Did I say that right? Multiple gods? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Polytheistic. Um, and each of these gods explains something. So you can see their their value, what value they're placing on things, because you can see it in their gods. If they didn't think it was a value, there wouldn't be a god for it. Mm -hmm. So I think that's just like another way that we can see what people place importance on. I mean... Another a, another one I just thought of mm -hmm. because I was listening to Lex Friedman talk to Todd Howard today. Oh, okay. Is in Skyrim. You can sell like the dragon bones. Yeah. For, or like the dragon scales is a better example. Bones, maybe. but you can sell those for a bunch of money. Yeah. Um, and I would argue that 
in my experience, dragons are more rare than trolls. Or I mean, other way around. I've seen dragons more than I've seen like trolls. Oh yeah. But a troll pelt or whatever does not it's sell like, for nearly as much as a dragon. Yeah. So that says that can tell you that there's something important about dragons mm. mm-hmm. that that culture values, yeah. even though it's less rare. I think. See, now that we're aware of that, I think we can go through and apply that to like subgroups of people. Mm-hmm. So, like, if you go on a college campus, what do those people value? Mm-hmm. And what is the campus value? Like, what are the people of the campus value? Because, you know, some colleges have wicked, amazing gyms. Yeah. And some have the dinkiest little gym ever. So you can understand immediately the values of that college. Mm-hmm. Some have a really epic football stadium. Some just don't. Right. You know? So I think knowing that is really helpful because if you can analyze yourself and look at your values and what you need or what you really value and find that in communities or find that in the groups or colleges or workplaces that you end up going to, Mm -hmm. I think that can be a very important tool just to gauge what you're about to step into. Well, I think that's when we were doing our college youth group thing. I think that's what we were kind of talking about when we were talking about living simply Mm. and not not putting a bunch of importance on like clothes and things like that. Yeah. Because if you're spending a bunch of money on clothes or something like that, then that shows that that's what you think is important. Yeah. Well, and I think it, it starts getting tricky because especially when you get into that, because it's like, so you want to live simply, right? Mm -hmm. You want to abide by what Christ is calling us to do and live simply. Well, what's simple? Mm -hmm. How are you defining simply? I think we can, I think we can ultimately draw a line by giving, you know, a hundred examples, kind of like running it through an AI. Yeah. But I think at its core, um, which is something our uh, worship pastor has said to me a couple times, um, and I think you've heard him say it, which is just acknowledging that things are just things and they're replaceable. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing wrong with having nice things. But if you hold on to it like it's the most precious thing ever, you probably need to let go of it for your own, you know, for your own health. Mm-hmm. But if you are aware that it's not the most valuable thing and precious thing in the entire world, then it's okay. I gotcha. I think it also depends on your intent. Mm-hmm. You know, because like, as somebody who edits videos and creates content, having a gaming computer mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense. Sure. And even if I do use it to game, that's okay because ultimately the intent is to create content, which is part of what my job is, right? So then that's okay to spend a lot of money on it. Even though it's part of my hobby, it's also you know, the intent or having a really big house. Mm-hmm. If you intend to have a big house because you're, you want a big house and that's what you think you deserve, probably not living simply. But if you have a big house with the intent of sharing it and opening it up to larger communities mm-hmm. and you want the space to do so, so other people in your community can come to that place, I think there's nothing wrong with that at all. Mm-hmm. You know? So I think it's where you place the importance episode yeah. one of lessons learned <laughs> um good callback thank you thank you 
So I practice those in the shower, actually. Now we'll actually get to the Great Father. Oh, I was going to ask. This is all just kind of like background to understand what the Great Father is. Mm -hmm. I have a quick question. Yeah. How much left of this do we have? I don't know. It because... depends on how much we can talk about. I think it's easier for us to talk about the stuff we've been talking about mm -hmm. than talking about the examples of like the Great Father. Mm. I just don't want to have to cut off in the middle of something. Mm -hmm. No, I think we'll be fine. You think we can finish all on this time. episode? I'll manage the time. Okay. We're so, going to get through all of this in one episode, ladies and gentlemen. So to get into the the Great Father, he's saying that what's remembered um, by people takes on representation as a pattern, which is kind of what we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. um, as that pattern of behavior characteristic of the culture creating supernatural beings who lived prior to living recollection. So... He's pretty much saying, let me go back to the quote. I'm moving my spot. <laughs> um, the things that we remember, like the ways that we should act, um, become the characteristics of like the gods. Interesting. He doesn't explain how it does that. Great. But that's what he's saying. And I know that we have issues with him getting to the how part. Yeah. So we won't spend much time on that. Well, I think that works for everything other than the Judeo-Christian God. Mm. I mean, I can see where he's coming from, though, when he says, like, Jesus represents facing the truth. Or, like, sure. how the he talks about the resurrection is, like, the redemptive process mm -hmm. where you go through something bad and come out better on the other side. Right. I think he's correct. Like, that is something that that story can... Um represent but it's the same issue we talked about last week that that's all he thinks it is mm -hmm. and not the he's not taking it for what it is yeah so same issue as before yeah it's just with the great father now um so he talks about the battle of the gods and how in mythology these battles of the gods are ultimately just different like moral structures fighting for dominance and they are being personified as gods, and that's how the myths work. So, like the Titans, with like led by Kronos in Greek mythology, yeah, that could be like one value system being overtaken by the value system that is represented by the Greek gods, mm. like Zeus. Mm -hmm. So that's what he's saying there. I don't. He doesn't give the uh, specific examples of that, mm. but does that make sense? He, yeah, I mean... He gives a non-mythological answer or example. I guess my own... Like, I get it. I, I, I get it. Mm -hmm. My I guess my problem is, is um, in Norse mythology, because they have a similar structure. Mm -hmm. um, was it? No, wait. No, no, no. I'm thinking of Greek myth. I mean, Norse mythology does have a similar structure, but the story I'm thinking about is uh, Greek. Um, the one where the Titan eats all the gods mm -hmm. and then Zeus comes in. Yeah. That's Kronos. Right. Yeah. The reason that happened wasn't for, I wouldn't say that it was because of opposing like ideologies, but you could see it that way. You can, they but I don't think the story is that. Mm -hmm. 
I think you can make it look that way if you want to, which is the issue with all of these. Right, and which goes back to what I said, which right. is like... Which is why you I can, want to spend a... You picked a blue comforter because at night you like to be soothed because blue is a soothing color. Mm-hmm. Like, you can apply whatever you want to whatever you want. Yeah. Knowing you can't the know. story, Yeah, if that's not... It's not like Kronos had, like, an, a whole ideology and Zeus was like, that's bad. No, Kronos was just like, I'm going to eat my kids. And Zeus was like, <gasps> well, I think he was threatened by them, though. Yeah, he was threatened by them. And I think you could say, oh, he's threatened. That could represent an old ideological system that's being threatened by a new one. So it tries to overtake it. I guess. But like, that's what I'm saying. Right. No, no, no. Like, I don't think he's not wrong in how he, he's not wrong in how he applies it. He's wrong for why he applies it. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, it totally works. It's and a I don't great e- analogy. I don't even know if I'm going to s- I don't, I'm not going to say that I know enough to say that he's wrong about Greek mythology. I I do. I read, I know that sounds weird, I read God of War, and there's a lot of Greek mythology in there. But you don't, how accurate then, is it to real Greek mythology? Wait. And then, and then I read, or sorry, I took a mythology class. Mm-hmm. I read God of War in mm-hmm. English, then took mythology from the same teacher because I was like, well, if I have to take an elective, I might as well take mythology. And we did study Greek mythology, mm-hmm. and which I read, like, the story of Greek mythology. Mm-hmm. So, and I can't recall everything because that was a, a little bit ago. But the prophecy said that Kronos was going to be killed by one of his children. So he ate all of his kids. Right, which you could say is the old ideology understanding that a new one is on its way and he doesn't want to let that happen. I guess I just like it's not I don't think it's but that's the whole point is he's reading into not the what it is but what it represents you're see and that's what at, I'm saying I know and you're only looking at what it is right because uh, that's what it is right but he, his point is that it can it can it probably does mean something he's trying to guess what it does mean right I'm saying that I don't think I don't think it does represent that I think you can see it representing that I don't mm-hmm. think it does represent that and I would just say you don't know enough to say that neither does he so right i'm just as smart as jordan peterson dude right here no but that's level that's my point is that's why i'm not saying that i can say he's wrong or not because i would could be right but you don't know more than him i'm right yeah i know so i won't say you're wrong but i'm not saying he's wrong either i think we're both wrong well i think they meant something and i don't i don't think i just I think I, I'm stumbled because, like, I don't think I don't think it was that complex of an ideology. Mm-hmm. I think that was just beyond. And I think you're probably right about that. But like, I don't I don't think the people of the time wrote um an entire mythology and the story behind the origin of the gods that they worship with that in mind. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I would probably agree with that. But but okay, so yeah, so. The great father then uh, protects his children from chaos, holds back the pre-cosmogonic water from which everything was derived to which everything will return and serves as the progenitor or like the the cr- source of creation for the hero. So like the hero acts out of the realm of the father mm. because that's where the order is. Okay. Because the hero doesn't start in chaos. The hero starts in order. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So that's what he's saying that the the great father represents. is like order and protecting his children from chaos and stuff. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, cool. So he says, um, usually it's thought of as tradition kind of stuff. Um, and it can be just like the great mother was good and bad. The great mm -hmm. father can be order, good and protecting, or it can be tyranny. Okay. Which is like yeah. order to the utmost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, like fascism or communism yeah, or something. Like yeah. that's order. It's it's just like not ideal. It's not good, yeah. So you got that one then? I do got that one. Cool. So he gives a couple stories. He talks about this guy that ends up sewing up the sky over this city that's raining or like that has rain falling on it once the king died. Okay. Um, and the way that he says it connects to the great father is once the king died, the king kind of represents the great father who's providing this order for this town. Mm -hmm. And once he dies, it leaves like a, like his protection was so great that it left this big hole in the sky. And now there's rain coming down, which is the chaos. Uh -huh. Um, so then this tailor comes in and like literally sews up the sky. So, but that's, uh, an example that he uses. I thought it was kind of weird. That is weird. Um, I can look through <laughs> what, here's some of what the, the good father is or the wise King. Um, he maintains stability, not because he's afraid of the unknown, but because nothing new can be built without a strong foundation. He is the adaptive routine developed by heroes of the past, whose adoption by those in the present allows for control and safety. He is a house with doors, a structure that shelters but does not stifle, a master who teaches and disciplines but does not indoctrinate or crush. Hmm. So that's the good version of the father. Right. When that, arguably a lot of that stuff is very hard to achieve at peak. Yeah. And something that I'll quote later that I really like um, that he brings up is the idea that any state or system or whatever that's capable of this protection is also capable of the tyranny. Yeah. So it's important for those hero-like figures to remain vigilant to prevent yeah. the state of the father from going into tyranny. Yeah. And that's why the great father has to be open to adaptation. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that can be said for any, any leader that includes literal fathers mm -hmm. is I think it's very easy to, well, it is, it is really easy to just go, well, I'm kind of tired of trying to like balance everything and mediate everything. So I'm just going to do what I think is right without considering anything else. And mm -hmm. I mean, that's really not good for any situation for anybody in the situation either. But I think that's like a really easy mindset to kind of get into mm -hmm. and just a really easy cop out from being like a good leader mm -hmm. is just to be like, well, we're just going to do it my way because I don't want to have to like mm -hmm. be a leader or change anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So. I like what he says about the great father, the good version of it. I think that's a good description of yeah. what a good society should look like. I'd say so. Um, or a good, maybe more specifically, structure for a society. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the society is able to operate within that. It's like the idea that he talks about um, when he says that Eden could be a walled garden. Mm -hmm. There's no like thing about it actually being walled. 
Right. But the point is that you're free to operate in that garden as long as you stand the walls because the walls are what's protecting you from the outside. Yeah. Whereas if there were no walls in this place, then anything from the outside could come and get you. Yeah. And then what he talks about with some of the postmodern stuff that's gone on recently is that um, when people have the walls for so long, they become blind to the walls mm-hmm. or what they are, how what, they are being beneficial. Yeah, what they're for. Yeah. So then they want to destroy the walls because they only see them as restricting. Yeah. And then they knock out the walls and then there's going to be something on the other side. And it's not going to be fun. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you that. So that's kind of the, that's that stuff. He talks about the Bible. Oh, yeah. Which it's not right, but it's, it's an interesting one. Why it's not right. So he's in first Kings um, talking about a prophet who was, I'm not going to quote it. You're not, okay. You're not going to no, quote no, it. No, no. Okay, okay, okay. Um, but it's a prophet that went up to a king and was pretty much like, you're doing bad things. He probably was. Um, and he's like saying in the name of God, like you're doing bad stuff. Yeah. Um, so then what he says here is the story carries revolutionary significance for human history, for it is the story of how someone without official position took the side of a wronged man and denounced a king to his face on the grounds of injustice. Um, he talks a little bit more and he says, but the fact that he was speaking for an authority, not his own, was so transparent that the king accepted Elijah's pronouncement as just. And then a little bit later, he says, to connect it to another point, the revolutionary and unprecedented fact is the way the prophets challenge their actions. So, from an atheist point of view, that would be a revolutionary idea. That okay. this just prophet challenge the king the top authority right the way that we see that is the prophets acting on the highest authority of all yeah which is god right so it's not revolutionary to us it's just the right thing um my question about that was given that they think it's so revolutionary how does that not make them think about like maybe there's something different about this book Mm-hmm. That's like got something going for it. Yeah, right. So, what do you what do you think about that section? Well, hmm. I mean, okay. I'm j- I'm just trying to come to words. I yawned a lot, and then I was kind of being self conscious about how many times I just yawned. Mm-hmm. To be honest with you, right? Understandable. Um, but I think that's something that's overlooked um, or can easily be overlooked by people looking at Christians as well as like Christians themselves. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I feel like God being the highest authority is hard to kind of keep in retrospect because when you're here on earth doing like mortal, human, touchy, tangible things mm-hmm. all the time it's really hard to just kind of like go, well, God's the highest power of them all. Mm-hmm. And especially as somebody who doesn't actually try to keep that in mind, like when you're looking at that from like a non-Christian standpoint, mm-hmm. it's like, well, what's their intention? Like what's their motivation behind this? Like, I think that's something that you could probably see in like a, 
in like a job, an office job position where like somebody's talking with their boss with like maybe some gusto or some uh, a little bit more fire under their words than like somebody else would. Mm-hmm. And everybody else, like people who aren't Christian are like, that's the boss. You can't talk to him like that. Yeah. Whereas like that Christian's like, well, no, God's the highest power. This is just some other guy that God also made and loves. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to let him just like walk all over me or what I do or my employees or whatever the case is. Mm-hmm. And I think for us as Christians, it can go either you keep it in mind and it serves you well in regards to being able to find confidence to confront um, like bad leadership. But it can also be an issue in regards to like, if you get too caught up in what's happening around you, you forget and you lack the confidence that you really need mm-hmm. to like kind of light a little fire under your words. Sure. And for those living without that kind of concept, like without the concept of like, there's an ultimate higher power. I just like, I feel like that's odd. Mm-hmm. Cause like, I don't want to imagine that Joe Schmo, who like is mean to his wife mm-hmm. and kids, who is my boss, is the highest power. Well, and here's the thing about <clears throat> it's it's what Nietzsche said about how we have these morals and ideas, but can't justify them now mm-hmm. because I mean, people don't think like what you're saying. Even if they don't believe in God as a higher power, they think of a higher power of liberty or equality Uh, or dignity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, They don't have a way to justify it, but that's what they think. Right. Which is, I think the whole justification concept is always, it always tickles my fancy because Mm -hmm. it's like, as a, you would, you would think that as like logical people, we wouldn't be Christian because we seek like a logical answer. And from the outside looking in, we've come to an illogical conclusion of like a magical being Mm -hmm. and to not go down the rabbit hole of how we come to that conclusion as logical individuals. Um, I think it's just really interesting that people will try to justify the morals without a reason. Right. And I think especially as like a logical individual, I would really be itchy to not have that reason. Mm-hmm. Like, why, though? Like, why does it matter? And I think that's something I experienced growing up without having the whole, you know, like, well, God's real. Mm-hmm. And then that was that. Was that that yeah. was the end of the conversation. So then when, like, things were brought up, like, well, God says you shouldn't do this. I'm like, and? Mm-hmm. What do I care? Yeah. You know? So then like a lot of morals for in my head were pointless. They went out the window. What's right. it matter if I do this, this, and this? Like, mm-hmm. why? Why do I care? And I think that's just like a really, like in reflection, that's such a destructive way to live, mm-hmm. especially for yourself yeah. more than anything. What a destructive way to live. Because if you don't have a firm foundation within their purpose mm-hmm. and reasoning behind your morals. I feel like your morals can easily just be whatever. Wishy-washy. You know, wishy-washy. Yeah. And then you just destroy yourself because your morals crumble. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say that 
non-religious people can't be good people because they oh. can oh absolutely they can it's just that they don't have an extra they don't have a justification in the deepest sense for that they right. can i mean you know they can like assume that it's the right thing to do and that's yeah. fine and there's plenty of people who have great morals mm-hmm. that aren't not religious at all yeah and those morals usually line up with christians yeah and they don't have a reason behind it but they're fine with it they're mm-hmm. totally kosher with it yeah for me it just like bothers me mm-hmm. and i'm sure there's other people out there that get a little itchy when it's like but why right um okay so i've got one more <coughs> So we can get this done. There's, I have basically the same quote twice, but I'm going to go with the longer one because I think it's better. Okay. So this is talking about the great father and how he can be good and bad. Okay. Interesting. I, I skipped us the stuff about the bad father because mm-hmm. I think we understand what that looks like better than we did with the terrible mother. Communism. Um, so he says, his ambivalence is unavoidable and should be recognized for such recognition serves as effective antidote to naive, ideologically motivated utopian thought. Anything that protects and fosters and that is therefore predictable and powerful necessarily has the capacity to smother and oppress and may manifest those capacities unpredictably in any given situation. No static political utopia is therefore possible. And then he follows that up a little bit later with, I'll say both of them. Okay. The great father is protection and necessary aid to growth, but absolute identification with his personality and force ultimately destroys the spirit. You're going to explain it, right? Oh, I'm just going to let me. Yeah, I can do that. Uh, Thank you. How generous. Um, I just got into that one. I like that one. So he says, it's unavoidable, basically, that the father, the great father, can protect and foster, but also can smother and oppress. Mm-hmm. It is unavoidable that both are possible. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that should be recognized as an antidote to naive, ideologically motivated utopian thought. Because the assumption uh... with those is that the father will not or maybe could not oppress and smother that all the father would do is to protect dude that is a really good quote i know wow okay and then the second one's more at a personal level instead of political Mm -hmm. it's necessary the great father's necessary to aid growth but you're if you're only identifying with that tradition and like stasis um then that'll ultimately destroy the spirit yeah because then there can be no growth so because you're not changing that really makes me think about because it says the father mm-hmm. so my initial thought of course is being a daughter no i'm kidding it's the father yeah <laughs> the the role of a father um it's really interesting because like i know there's strong ladies out there but biologically you're not going to be a stronger lady than your man is going to be a stronger man. Mm-hmm. It's just not going to work that way. So like at, at their core, a man, the father of a house, you know, wife, kids, mm-hmm. they are the strongest. It might not be the smartest, you know, give or take on who's the smartest in the relationship, but the strongest, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And with physical strength, comes just overall ruling so the father has absolutely 100 percent the ability to protect that family 
they're incredibly that is part of being a father in my eyes is being very strong Mm -hmm. both physically and mentally but i would argue almost more importantly physically because if somebody threatens your family the biggest threat that's gonna like you know turn up your senses to engage as a protector is a physical threat Mm -hmm. and to be a man and to be a father and to be able to step in is important with that strength to deflect an opposing threat such as maybe another male breaking in Mm -hmm. like a burglary or a robbery or something you need the strength to turn away yet another man Mm -hmm. you can easily smother your wife and kids not a shadow of doubt in my mind that can happen. Mm-hmm. So I think that's why it's important to have a really good value system and to have a good faith, such as like believing in God, because God calls you to do the very things that you could do, but would be horribly evil, like beat your wife and kids mm-hmm. or just, you know, use physical threats. I mean, like you don't have to beat your wife and kids. Like it, it is very clear who's strong. Mm-hmm. It's very, it is crystal clear. I'm sure you remember being little. Mm-hmm. It was crystal clear that your dad was much stronger than you. Mm-hmm. It just is. So you don't even need to make a physical threat. It is just present. So that not only do your morals as a Christian or whatever value system you have keeps you in check from acting out evilly, but I think more importantly, having a good community such as a great wife who also holds those values Mm -hmm. and can kind of help keep you in check. Mm -hmm. So Jordan Peterson talks about beauty and the beast being like the best feminine story Hmm. or myth Mm -hmm. because he sees kind of the archetypal role of the female to be, to like tame the man Mm -hmm. from like being a beast. Sure. And to being something that's like civilized. Sure. Um, And I think that's kind of what you're getting at there. Well, and well, I I also wanted to point out mm-hmm. um, that he also talks about the importance of becoming dangerous, yes. and knowing that you're dangerous, yes, so that you don't actually act dangerously. Right, and that's where I was going to go with that. Is I think I think part of being a wife and part of being a female in a relationship is knowing that the man is going to be the more aggressive individual he's going to be the protector it's Mm -hmm. just built into us the way that being the wife being the mom is the nurturing aspect of things Mm -hmm. and i think there's there's a check and balance because at the same time if the woman's too coddling to the kids that's not healthy either right the man's got to put a little fire under her Mm -hmm. you know be like hey we can't we can't just coddle them they fall and cry they they gotta pick themselves up we can't just are you okay, baby? No, this is the fifth time you fell this week. Like, suck it up, buttercup. Like, Mm -hmm. come on. So I think it's wrong to... I don't think he's wrong in the sense that Beauty and the Beast is a good representation of what he said. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's right to live that way. I don't think that it's the woman's job to tame the man. But she's saying that's like the ultimate hero myth kind of for the woman. Hmm? Like, he's saying that that's like the archetype of what a woman can do. Oh, okay. Yeah. Sure. And I don't know if he's changed his views on that. I think that's a few years old, but... I don't think that's a good way for us to live. No. Like, I don't think as men we should rely on our... No, and I'm not saying that's what it is. Like, we obviously do our best. But they're going to have to understand that, like you said, we're aggressive and don't think sometimes. Yeah. And we'll do dumb stuff. And that's not even, like, the 
abusive direction is just as much as it's like i'm gonna go like punch this guy because he said something something that i didn't like he said something dumb so i'm gonna go pop his jaw yeah and it's like no you can't do that no right and in the same in the same sense it's like our like i said it's our job as the protectors to also make sure that our wife isn't too coddling you Mm -hmm. know they're nurturing not coddling and we're protecting not aggressive yeah you know and i think you have to recognize both aspects yeah to be successful something else is um and i i don't think this is a jordan peterson quote i think this is like just an old saying um but maybe it is a jordan peterson quote but it's um again i'm paraphrasing because i don't i'm bad with memorizing word for word um but it's a man who is harmless is no threat at all mm-hmm. um he's not dangerous mm-hmm. but a man who's capable of great um destruction and great violence but chooses to like withhold that mm-hmm. is a dangerous man yeah and the idea is like well it's just what jordan peterson was saying basically. okay cool yeah, I, I really like that idea. I really like that mm-hmm. concept. And I think it's really important for the utopia stuff too. Yeah. Because that was the failure of communism and stuff is they assumed that human nature was good enough that they could have something like communism and it would work. And like, that's the thing. Right. In theory, communism works. Oh, yeah. Well, but in, in practice, theory, it's never going to because in theory, it denies human nature. Everything works. Well, I wouldn't say that, but I would. I'd say that communism works better than capitalism. Well, in theory. I, well, I would say in theory, anything can work. In theory, if gravity wasn't pulling this water bottle down, it would float. You're mm-hmm. right. In in theory, if gravity didn't exist, it would. But gravity exists, so it it would fall immediately. Mm-hmm. I think you can do a lot of things in theory. The important thing is grounding yourself in the reality of the situation, mm-hmm. which isn't like you're not saying you're not not saying that. But I think removing our I think often we go like, well, it should work it like on paper and pencil. It works. I, you know, statistically, it works like as a car guy, motorcycle guy. There's a lot of spreadsheet junkies. There's a lot of spec sheet junkies. And they're like, well, this motorcycle makes 153 horsepower and 127 foot-pounds of torque. I bet it's quicker than that bike because that bike only makes 149 horsepower. Uh, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then, oh, whoopsie-doozy, the spreadsheet junkie's bike gets absolutely decimated by the other guy because the numbers don't really apply in the real world mm-hmm. quite as much as you'd hope. Don't mm-hmm. get me wrong. 80 horsepower versus 150 yeah, my money's on the 150. But when you start getting up to like perf- like 600cc performance bikes, you're you're going to be hard pressed to really see those numbers translate. Mm-hmm. So my point is is like theories are theories, but you need to ground yourself in the reality of the situation mm-hmm. before coming to a conclusion. And that's the problem with like communism. Yeah. It works in theory. Yeah, of course. We won't go into it for the sake of time, but you can also talk about evolution there. Mm-hmm. It works in theory, yeah. sure. But ground it in ground it in reality. Ground it in the real world that mm-hmm. we deal with. I think the best way is to like test. Yeah. That's why like hands-on science. Just do it. Yeah, you could measure and and talk about things, but just just shoot it, blow it up or something. <laughs> you know? Perfect test. I want to know what happens. So yeah, that's the great father. 
good and bad. Good, um, good, bad, and ugly. With that, we're done with chapter two. Yay! So, three more chapters to go of varying lengths. Yeah, well, chapter three will be like one episode, and then chapter four, four is like two. A couple episodes, and then chapter five will be like all of the episodes. Yeah, so. <laughs> and then there's like a sub-chapter in chapter four. Yeah. It should be good, though. That's mm-hmm. kind of the foundational stuff. He should just be building off of that that yeah. uh, myth structure. Okay. Cool. Cool beans. Well, then we'll wrap up the episode. Um, last week, we kind of ended by saying that there was some possible promotional stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's also where we're going to end this episode is there's possible promotion stuff. And I'm not going to say anything else. But just keep your eyes out. Maybe there's something. Maybe there's not. I don't know. Mm-hmm. You're not amused by my joke. You know what I'm getting at. Yeah. Nobody else does. Yeah. And I'm kind of sad you're not amused. Because you'd be the only other person who could be amused by this. I'm relating to the audience. <laughs> extreme boredom and confusion (laughs) which is what most of our comments these days are what are you talking about i don't know click the link (laughs) all right thanks for watching everyone we know it was a little bit longer this time but not as long as some of them have been um yeah it was a good chat um and we will see you next time next week for yet another episode of lessons learned that's no i'm 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 good talking bye everyone you're staring at me uncomfortably bye